from the World Economic Forum, sitting in for Beatrice DiCaro, this is Robin Pomeroy and this is the Book Club Podcast. The World Economic Forum has just published its annual Global Gender Gap Report. You can hear all about that on my weekly podcast, Radio Davos. And on this episode of The Book Club, we speak to Jolie Brearley, author of a book called The Motherhood Penalty. In that book, she sets out the reasons why the gender pay gap is so great for mothers and how policy around childcare and paternity leave would help close the gap. Jolie set up a campaigning group called Pregnant Then Screwed in the UK in 2015 to end maternity and pregnancy discrimination and to support women. In her book, The Motherhood Penalty, she offers practical advice both to mothers and to employers looking to support working parents. My colleague Kate Whiting interviewed Jolie Brearley and started by asking her what exactly the motherhood penalty is. The motherhood penalty is actually a term that's coined by sociologists and it's about the systematic disadvantage that women encounter in the workplace when they become mothers in terms of pay, perceived competence and benefits compared to other workers. So essentially the motherhood penalty is, for me, it is the gender pay gap. Motherhood penalty makes up, some studies have shown, 80% of the gender pay gap. And it really is about all of these barriers that women headbutt when they try to have children and a career that fathers just don't experience. I think that's really interesting because I myself didn't even know that when we talk about the gender pay gap, so much of it is actually mothers rather than women themselves. I mean, there really isn't a huge gender pay gap for women uh, in their 20s and below. And you start to see the gender pay gap widening from the age of about 32, 33. It really takes a jump and then it increases and increases from there. And it's it's really because of, because we dared to have a baby. I mean, how dare we? And the, the system just isn't set up to work for us. You set up Pregnant and Screwed, um, which is a campaigning organisation to help women. What was it that inspired you to do that? I had my own experience of pregnancy discrimination. So when I was four months pregnant with my first child, I informed my employer that I was pregnant. And the next day they sacked me by voicemail. And my employer was a children's charity. And it was a woman that did it to me. I think it's really important to say that a lot of people think that this is men that do this to women, but actually, anecdotally, our research finds that it's just as common amongst women as it is uh, men. And so I found myself pregnant and unemployed and terrified about how I was going to pay my rent and pay my bills. And I... Uh, got a lawyer who said they would write a letter to my previous employer demanding I be compensated for lost earnings. That letter cost me £250 and the charity just threw that letter in the bin. They didn't even grace it with a response. So then I thought, well, what do I do now? And I asked the lawyers what was next and they said, well, you can take them to tribunal. I said, how much will that cost? And they said, oh, well, it will be about £9,000. £9,000. I mean, who has that sort of money? I certainly didn't. I could barely scrape together the £250 for the letter. And so that that was, you know, that was it. And then I, I went to a, 
a routine doctor's appointment and discovered that I was having a high-risk pregnancy, they said, look, your cervix has almost vanished. The baby is essentially hanging on by a thread. We're going to rush you into surgery and do this really delightful process where they tried to bolt things together to keep the baby in place. And as I was recovering from that operation, the doctor said, whatever you do, don't get stressed because it's stress that will trigger early labor. And if you go into labor now, the baby will die. And so, you know, I really, I, I had no choice because you only have three months to raise a tribunal claim from the point the discrimination occurs. I couldn't wait until my baby was born safely. He's fine. He's now eight years old, very healthy. Um, and then pick up the case at a later date. So I just, I had to drop the case. Cost and the time limits meant that I couldn't do anything about it. And so I, I sort of found myself out of nowhere within the space of two weeks going from really happy, having a baby, wonderful relationship, you know, living in a flat, career going really well, to suddenly no job prospects, no income, completely reliant on my partner to pay my rent and my bills. The the only thing I was good for was as a vessel for a growing baby. And I wasn't even doing that very well. I was failing at that. And I was sort of watching daytime TV, just thinking, where's my life gone? And that, that event radicalized me. It changed the way I viewed everything. I viewed the world and it ate away at me that that had happened for about a year and a half until I finally set up Pregnant and Screwed, which essentially is a manifestation of, of my anger and fury that the system let me down so badly. And this isn't a situation that's unique to the UK. And you've now set up, as I understand, Pregnant and Screwed elsewhere around the world. Tell me about what experiences other women are having and what you've heard from them. So the thing about pregnancy and maternity discrimination in particular is that no country is immune from this. It happens in every country, even the countries that we see as the Nirvana, Sweden, for example, Norway, Denmark, there are still instances of pregnancy and maternity discrimination there. And I think no matter how well you change the system to adapt to women, we have spent centuries in the Western world in particular, really seeing women as mothers. That's what their role is. Their role is to bring up children. And if you don't, if you don't have children, you know, you're seen as a bit useless. Like, why would you not have a child? And if you do have children, that is your primary role. It is to be a mother. Um, and so there are these biases, these deeply entrenched biases that I think everybody holds, men and women, towards women from the point that they get pregnant. They're seen as distracted and uncommitted to their jobs. And that plays out in a variety of ways. And, you know, discrimination can be as extreme as my scenario where you get sacked but it can also be demotions it can be bullying and harassment it can be about flexible working arrangements just being completely cast aside and ignored and so in in other countries like Sweden Denmark and Norway we do see that there are women that experience this same bullying and harassment and that they they perhaps get demoted or their career just completely stalls they just seem to immediately hit that glass ceiling and then in other countries you know it's it, it's it's more severe than it is here 
you know, in America, they have a horrendous time because women don't automatically get maternity leave. One in four women in America return to work after 10 days after giving birth. I mean, that's barbaric. I just could not imagine how anybody can return to work after 10 days. And so, um, you know, many women feel that they have to leave their jobs because that's just, it, it feels impossible to me that you would be able to do that. And so so they're forced out of their jobs um, in that way. And so in America, you get pregnancy discrimination. You don't get so much maternity discrimination because you don't really have maternity leave. Um, but in all of these countries, the, the stories are devastating and they strip women of their confidence um, and they strip women of their economic empowerment. And that should be something that we're all very, very worried about. And it also must have an impact on their mental health, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, mental health is a really big issue. And what we now know is that stress is really bad for a growing baby. And it can trigger all sorts of problems uh, in terms of the the growth of the baby, but premature Birth is also very common in women that experience stress. And of course, being pushed out of your job or experiencing bullying and harassment can really take its toll on the mental health of women and therefore the successful development of a baby. So we know, we we see, and again, this is anecdotally, but we see that lots of women that experience pregnancy discrimination end up with postnatal depression. I certainly did, and lots of the women that I speak to. And in fact, my experience of... Uh, being told I was having a high-risk pregnancy after I had been sacked from my job. I can't prove it, but there's got to be a link there that suddenly, you know, I was told that my cervix had almost vanished, all these problems were happening. Um, And obviously, I mean, I'm sure we'll come on and talk about this briefly, but during the pandemic, we've seen a huge uptick in the number of pregnant women and mothers requesting mental health support. In fact, it's increased by 40%, 40% between 2019 and 2021. Yeah, I mean, I do want to come on to talk about um, COVID-19 and the impact. But before that, you know, there's a whole chapter about domestic load and that women effectively end up doing this sort of lion's share of housework and childcare and that you say GDP fails to account for this unpaid labour. So what, what is going on there? Why do women end up doing that and what needs to change there? Yeah, so women do almost three times uh, the care work of men. They do 60% more of the unpaid labour. And that's obviously devastating for women's careers because, you know, we sort of, the the notion can women have it all has turned into can women do it all? You know, many of us are working full time. Uh, There are three, more than three quarters of mothers work. um, And so you have a situation where we're going to work, we're doing all of this paid work and then we're coming back and doing all of this unpaid work as well. And it means that many women request to work flexibly they request to work part-time because you literally I mean it's impossible you can't do all of that and that means obviously you get lower pay it means you're half as likely to be promoted than if you're working full-time so it all interlinks the domestic all of the domestic labor we're doing is a big part of the motherhood penalty but what we see in countries like Sweden where they have Um, better paternity leave where dads are taking more time out in those early days to care for their children is actually women do less of the unpaid labor and so there are ways that we can fix this it's it's a system problem and in the UK 
for most, nearly all families, it's women that take maternity leave. They take these long periods of maternity leave. Dads will have a maximum of two weeks off, which is nowhere near enough time to figure out how to work a baby. And so women end up being the main carer. They go back to work. They're still the ones doing the majority of the housework, doing the majority of the cleaning, doing the pickups and collections, knowing how to do get the baby back to sleep at night. Um and that's a big, it's a big problem for women. It's a big problem for women in employment. But also this, you know, all of this unpaid work is, has massive benefits for the economy. You know, without the, without it, men wouldn't be able to go to work. We wouldn't have industries, you know. And we saw in um, Iceland when women went on strike over this in the 70s and said, I've had enough. I'm not doing all of this unpaid labor anymore. It's not fair. And they uh, stood in the middle of Iceland. It was 90% of women went on strike. Um, That really changed things. It showed men that actually there is value in this work, that they cannot do their jobs without it. And I think that was the big shift for Iceland in terms of gender equality. So, you know, I'm not saying we all need to go on strike. What I'm saying is, that that economic that unpaid work has economic value and should really be respected and valued by the government. Going on strike is quite tempting, isn't it? Um, yeah, coming back to COVID nineteen, I know you say that. Well, and and obviously there were lots of um, you know terrible things that happened during COVID and lots of negatives. But one of the positives that came out of it was actually that Dad saw that unpaid work that was going on. For the first time yeah they did that you know there, there aren't many positives you can take from the pandemic but there were lots of men that were furloughed and they suddenly found them found that they actually enjoyed spending time with their children uh, and so many more fathers have now requested to work part-time or to work flexibly so that can, they can spend more time with their kids but they also saw that unpaid labour that was often invisible when they would go out to work very early in the morning and come back very late. And so it's been very eye-opening for men um, and I think it has increased the amount of unpaid labour that some men are doing. I can't, you know, I haven't got any research to prove that, but this is what we were hearing from mothers during the pandemic and after. So I think, yes, there are definite, there definitely has been in some households a more egalitarian share of the domestic load as a result of the pandemic. Whether that will continue and or whether we'll just forget it and just move on and all pretend everything's normal and the same as it was pre-pandemic within the next two years, who knows? But the the only way I think that we will ensure dad spends more time with their kids is by ring fencing and properly paying paternity leave so that dads have this opportunity to spend time with their kids in their early in those early days. Yeah, and that Deloitte um, research that you you sort of cite showed that much, many of them do want to spend more time. It's not that they don't. It's not, you know, we're not kind of getting at dads for not wanting to be part of this. It's just that the societal structures don't allow them to, to participate in the way that they'd want to. Yeah, that's exactly it. There's research that shows 80% of dads said they do anything to spend more time with their children. And if we look at what other countries have done in Quebec, the province of Quebec in Canada, they ring-fenced and properly paid paternity leave 
<clears throat> a number of years ago and the uptake from men compared to the rest of Canada I mean it just went through the roof so it shows that if you create a system for dads so that they're enabled to take that time out they will absolutely do it and this has so it has so many benefits for society you know there's there was a one study by a university that showed that if dads spend uh, more time with kids in those early days, that couples are 40%, 40% more likely to stay together. But it also, kids do better in the education system. Mothers have higher rates of well-being. And there was a study in Sweden that found that for every month of paternity leave taken by dads a mother's wages rise by seven percent it has an enormous enormous impact on the motherhood penalty you were writing the motherhood penalty well you were updating it during covid and you know we did see um, a lot of women having to then leave their jobs because they couldn't juggle you know homeschooling and um and working as well and i think um mckinsey certainly re- refers to it as the great attrition so a lot of women now have left the workforce and that will have an impact what kind of things did you um see from people from mothers and i know you set up a helpline didn't you during covid yeah we um the number of calls we were getting quadrupled almost overnight and there were many different experiences with pregnant women it was horrendous because they were terrified of their safety and they didn't know what their legal rights were whether they um, had health and safety rights and so a lot of our calls were from pregnant women saying what do I do you know I work in a supermarket I'm interacting with people all the time um, and I don't feel safe Uh, for mothers uh, there was huge amounts of redundancies in the first wave of the pandemic because employers were very scared they felt like um, they needed to reduce their expenditure so that they could survive. And what we were seeing were mass redundancies of women who were on maternity leave and pregnant women. Women were calling us and saying, I've been made redundant, so have the other 10 women that are on maternity leave and nobody else has in the company. It was going going back to that bias of women who are pregnant and on maternity leave being distracted, not committed. They are mums. Let's just get rid of them. They're dead wood. And we know that when a business is facing cuts or bracing for a difficult working environment, the first people out on their ear are pregnant women and mothers. And that's how it, you know, it really played out that way. It was, I think it was 47%. You were 47% more likely to be made redundant if you were a mother. That was data from the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Um, what what we've seen since then, of course, is there's a big skills gap in the UK. And so actually some of this is leveled out a bit. Many of those mothers who lost their jobs have found new jobs. But what what that data doesn't show us and what we don't know is whether mothers have had to take a pay cut because of that, whether they're working the same number of hours of what they were previously. Um, so the data's, you know, a bit rough and doesn't give us a, a good enough overview of what the situation is for mothers in employment right now, which is quite worrying. <clears throat> but the key issue really was that as the schools closed and childcare facilities closed, of course, you had 
all of this extra unpaid work that mothers were doing. PricewaterhouseCoopers said it added 31 hours of unpaid work onto Women's Working Week. 31 hours. So that was another job that we had to do. And for every hour of uninterrupted paid work done by mothers, fathers were doing three hours of uninterrupted paid work. So it's very clear that it was mothers that were hoovering up all of this extra unpaid work, you know, both literally and metaphorically. And of course, that didn't just affect their earning potential because many were saying, I I either furlough me, I need to be furloughed, which of course reduced their income, or I need to work fewer hours, which reduced their income, or they got made redundant. It really impacted their mental health because many were trying to do everything. And at the same time that a pandemic was happening, which of course was affecting everybody's mental health, and we're still seeing the impact of that now. We're still seeing that mothers haven't really fully recovered and that many employers have not got their heads around this. They haven't necessarily put programs in place or considered the fact that we're sort of traumatized many women are traumatized from what they experienced behind their closed doors over the last two years you refer to childcare as infrastructure and I think that's a really good way of of putting it because it actually is as important as hospitals and roads and all of the other things we think of as infrastructure I know that Sweden does it really well and actually I think there's a sort of difference in how they perceive um childcare providers yeah well the, sweden uh bases their childcare system on what is good for the child so they dis- they think every child deserves to have access to really good quality childcare and so they've create built the system around that and that means that they have to make it affordable for every family because otherwise every child can't access it and every child has a right to a place in childcare. And childcare workers are really highly valued in Sweden. They're paid way more than the average wage. It's a really good quality job where people, you know, childcare workers are really admired and held in high esteem. In the UK, childcare workers are paid the average wage, I think it's about £7.40 per hour. Um, and one in 10 childcare workers live in poverty. And inevitably, you I mean, this is it's a really hard job. If you've ever tried looking after multiple children simultaneously, there is no harder job, if you ask me. And, and yet we pay these brilliant humans who are looking after most, our most valued, treasured possessions uh, an absolute pittance to do that job what we need is is government investment to make it all stack up and this is what sweden gets gets right and other countries get this do really really well with childcare they invest in it properly and they reap the benefits not just now for children now and for mothers going into work but long term because um you know this this reduces the attainment gap between the richest and the poorest children if they have really good quality care from the outset and good education from the outset, we know that this plays out in the education system throughout the rest of their lives. One of the key um, chapters in the book is around the fact that there is no sort of ordinary mother um, and actually that mothers of different backgrounds, you know, different race, disabled mothers have had different experiences as well. What are, what are some of the things that you've seen around that? So we know that for black and brown mothers, they are more likely to experience pregnancy and maternity discrimination than white mothers are. We know that for single mothers, uh, again, much more likely to experience discrimination. For young mothers, they are six times more likely to experience pregnancy or maternity discrimination. And by young mothers, I mean ages 25 years 
or younger um, and and also disabled mothers we don't have the stats on exactly how much more likely they are to experience it but they're more likely to report experiencing pregnancy or maternity discrimination and so of course it's where these biases intersect um, and whether that's ableism or racism or um, whether it's the way we treat and view single mothers in in uh, in our culture which you know we we sort of seem to view single mothers as being feckless and uh, that you know they've made bad choices that's how they've ended up in this position whereas for single dads they're heroes you know held up on pedestals oh wonderful you're taking care of your children it mustn't be by choice you must have fallen onto hard times you poor man um and so those those biases play out um and mean that you are more likely to lose your job you're more likely to experience discrimination which is leaves these women in much more precarious positions because often you know it's harder them for them to get back into the workplace we talked a little bit about what um, policymakers can do but what can companies do to support women all these women yeah there's lots of things companies can do the first thing i would say is uh, the childcare is sort of an open goal that employers don't seem to be filling at the moment. And I don't understand why, because we've got this massive skills gap. You've got all these brilliant women that are at home that desperately want to work. And if you find a solution to the childcare issues they're facing, you will see your uh, recruitment go through the roof in terms of brilliant, skilled working mothers in particular. And we also know from companies like Patagonia in the US who created on-site childcare for their employees that if you do that the the retention rates of parents also enormously increases they say it pays for themselves in terms of retention pays for itself in terms of retention rates but also what's quite magical about that is that um, you create a community within your employees because they're not just people then that work together. They're people who have kids in the same nursery and they go to the nursery to see their children. Their children are playing together. You become sort of like family and that has a really good bonding. Um, you know, it's a really good bonding experience for employees. Uh, so childcare is something employers really should be thinking about right now, whether that's on-site childcare, whether that's paying a local childcare provider, uh, whether it's working with organisations who provide ad hoc childcare to give free ad hoc childcare to parents when the kids are sick or whatever it is, you know, really think about that. It's really important. Second thing you should do is advertise your jobs as flexible and be very specific about what you mean by flexibility. It's no good saying we're open to talk about flexible working because a mother reading that thinks, I need to work three days a week. Are you going to let me work three days a week? I don't want to have this awkward conversation with you. Be really specific. Say, you can work three days a week, you can work four days a week, you can do a job share, whatever it is, and you will see the number of women applying for your job go through the roof again. Zurich Insurance did this and they saw the rates of really skilled, brilliant women applying for their jobs go through the roof. Uh, Third thing you should do, pay maternity leave properly and paternity leave. Don't just think about mums, think about dads and encourage dads to take paternity leave. We often encourage, you know, we, we expect mums to take time out to care for their children. Dads often state that they are put off from taking paternity leave by their employees. So encourage them to take time out to care for their children. Uh, 
set up women's groups, allow women within your organization to create other groups of women who are also employees to discuss what's working and what's not working because lobbying as a group is so much more powerful and there are women in organizations that will be too scared to speak up but if they are part of a group they'll feel much more empowered to say what the problems are that they are experiencing and give that group the resources that they need. Don't just expect them to do work with no money, with no ear ear straight to the CEO, you know, give them that direct line of communication to the top um, and also the resources they need. Presenteeism is a massive issue, particularly in UK workplaces. We work the longest hours in Europe and we know that um, many uh, employees say that they they have to sit at their desk for really long hours to look like they're working in order to be promoted. Um, so I would suggest implementing what uh, the PepsiCo CEO Robert Reachbrock did, which was the leave loudly approach. And so he encouraged his senior executives when they were going home at the end of the day to leave on time and make a big song and a dance about it, say, I'm going home to collect my children now and to do all of the domestic load that I need to do when I get home. And that then trickles down to um, other employees so they know it's okay to leave on time because presenteeism is really bad for productivity and really bad for mental health. So you've got to nip it in the bud and that's a really good way of doing it. Those would be my top tips. Yeah, it's just a lot of it is normalising it, isn't it? And I think that's kind of what comes across really well in the book, that it's actually the cultural attitudes that we have around parenting. They're almost stuck in you know, the Victorian era in some ways. And actually, you know, it takes the policymaking, but also the shift in mindsets within organisations to make people see actually it's okay if I go and, you know, go home early and go and get my children and all the rest of it. Yeah, and I think we're just really bad at that I think we have been told for so many years that the way to get on is graph 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 work 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 head down don't complain um don't talk about your children now you know we we base everything on the unencumbered worker you mustn't talk about your children you mustn't talk about your private life um and actually that that's not healthy for anybody and all of the research shows that actually you know, if you look at different countries, the fewer hours they work, the more productive they are. It's not about, you know, putting the hours in. It's about uh, making sure that you have a high rate, that you, you feel okay, that you're happy, that you're healthy, that you're able to do your job properly. And if you're working 80 hours a week, you're not happy and you're not healthy. You're a mess. <laughs> Yeah, and four-day working week for everybody would make a, a huge difference as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And again, all of the research supports that. You go to four days, you increase your productivity, um, and increase your bottom line as a result because people are happier and they feel like they're spending the time that they need to spend with their family and with their kids. The author Jolie Brearley was speaking to Kate Whiting. The book is called The Motherhood Penalty: How to Stop Motherhood Being the Kiss of Death for Your Career. And you can find a ton of data on the state of gender equality around the world in the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap Report 2022. Find that on our website, reform.org. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Don't forget to join the book club on Facebook, which is coming up to 200,000 followers. And to discuss podcasts, join us at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club, also on Facebook. And of course, please search out all the other podcasts in the World Economic Forum, Radio Davos, Meet 
Meet the Leader and Agenda Dialogues, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.